Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 30th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and today we're talking about a neat fish, a big fish, a really long-lived species hailing from the family Catastomidae and the genus Ichthyobus. It's the largest species that can't have its hide tanned by its own brain. We're talking about the buffalo, specifically the big mouth buffalo. And we've got two excellent guests with us. We've got Tyler Winter from Minnesota, who's a native fish conservationist and angler and a major big mouth buffalo fan. And we've got Alec Lackman, who's a postdoc at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and he's an expert on big mouth buffalo biology. So welcome, you two. Before we go any further, I, I, I do feel like I need to clarify uh, that that bit about the tan and the hide is a joke, just about the similarity of the name with, with the bison. The, the buffalo here, it's a fish, and it, think of it like a water buffalo, but you, you know, not like a water buffalo, water buffalo, but like a water bison. We gotcha. We gotcha. All right, Tyler, so I was really struck by what you said when we were kind of talking about this episode ahead of time. And you had said, you know, I really want people to go out and catch one of these amazing fish, release it knowing their grandchildren or great-grandchildren could catch it again. And there's a lot packed into that statement. And one thing I was surprised to learn in particular about this fish is how long they can live. And I was hoping one or both of you guys could speak to that. Well, I'm maybe an expert in catching them, but... Alec is the expert on the biology, so I'm going to let him have that one for the age. Yeah, so back a few decades ago, it was thought that the species lived about 10 to 20, maybe 30 years maximum, but no one had really thoroughly investigated their otoliths or the ear stones, which are inside the cranium of many fish species, and these are the structures that can most accurately determine the age of the fish. So then during an ichthyology class, I became curious in otolith aging of different fish species and I began investigating big mouth buffalo and it surprised us that the first 18 fish that we looked at were over 80 years old. It's crazy. And at first we were very skeptical and tried to read all the literature on thin section nautilus and all that but we just kept collecting data and realized that this is a very poorly studied species beforehand and basically there was a big knowledge gap and from there it's led to more and more work. But yeah, the, the species can, we've so far documented, they can live up to 112 years. That's crazy. And that's, I mean, that's pretty rare for fish to live that long, especially freshwater fish, correct? I mean, that's that's freaking old. Yeah, it's, it's exceptional because, and also because they're adapted to shallow water ecosystems, some of which are even prone to winter kill. So it's amazing that they can survive so many decades in such habitats. And one of the other interesting things we've discovered about their biology is that they tend to recruit episodically across multi-decadal time intervals. They basically play the long game. They run a marathon, not a sprint. I was perusing Wikipedia before I jumped on here. I saw a reference to a paper that you were on there, Alec, saying that as these fish get older, they don't really see a physiological performance drop off. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, because I always thought that aging and getting older and get, getting sort of decrepit was kind of a universal thing, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, so another interesting aspect that we discovered, and this was a project led by Derek Saar, who was a master's student at NDSU at the time, 
for North Dakota State University, uh, he looked at three different physiological systems in big mouth buffalo and see how they changed with age. And what we found is that their immune function and stress response incre- like got better with age, even at 100 years old. And their telomeres at the end segments of the DNA showed no change with age, even though in a lot of vertebrate species, the telomeres are found to shorten with age and maybe a sign of senescence. So basically what we found is even as big mouth buffalo approach 100 years in age, they're still advancing into their prime. The fountain of youth, it ain't down in Florida. It's in the genes of the big mouth buffalo. That's crazy. Like, do we know how old they can get? Like, I'm, I'm so impressed by this fish. And that's just, it, it, it's pretty amazing. That's an amazing fact. Yeah, we don't know how long they can live. And we don't know if they reach like a plateau at the end and then they rapidly senesce or if it's a gradual senescence at a certain point. But yes, at 100 years of age, though, we're, we found basically no evidence of senescence. Yeah, it is curious what is fountain of youth, and it opens the door to a lot more fascinating questions and hopefully more study in this area. Thinking about how this fish lives to such an old age, I'm guessing it matures late, spawns only episodically. What are some considerations as anglers that we should keep in mind? I think it's really important, especially for this species of fish, to do a little bit of your own research. If you have buffalo near you, be a good observer of the natural system and try to figure out if you've seen a lot of different size classes in the area you fish, you know, maybe your population is doing better. These fish are really poorly monitored by most state agencies. And so it's hard to make broad statements. Minnesota still allows unlimited commercial harvest of these fish, which, you know, it's amazing that they've persisted under that, you know, under those regulations. So I have caught uh, big mouth buffalo, and I have donated them to Alec for age analysis, which is the only way actually to like harvest buffalo from the place where I catch them is is angling. But once that's done, I'm going to be catch and release only because yes, I want to see these fish and appreciate them, and then let them go, knowing that like they could live longer than I'm going to. And I think that's pretty amazing. I'm curious, you mentioned commercial fisheries there, and I didn't know that they had them up in Minnesota. I know that there's some mixed stock commercial fisheries that include buffalo down in like Louisiana, but what is the purpose of these? Where are the fish going? Are people eating them? Are they being used for other purposes? Oh, people are eating them. You can find buffalo fillets online for 9 to $11 a pound. Oh. Really? Okay. How do they taste? They taste good. Can you be more specific? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Because I am adamantly opposed to the uh, to the wanton waste of fish, particularly native fish, when Alex said that he would take fish for science, I wanted to make sure that the fish got used as much as possible. And so I've cleaned them and kept the fillable portions. I weigh them out beforehand. And uh, Alex said these were the only fish he ever got donated to him that were filleted. But they have thick, white, firm fillets on them and, you know, are prized food fish. So... Actually, in Minnesota, commercial fishermen generally target bigmouth buffalo. They get a better price per pound on the wholesale market for buffalo than they do for carp. So a lot of our commercial inland fishing is actually done for buffalo primarily. And these fish are not a carp. And I wanted to make that point. And I think folks should know that too. So I don't know if there's anything you've observed with how people might confuse this species with some of the carp that aren't native and just kind of speak to that. Oh, it's a constant battle. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, they resemble each other. They both are large-bodied and have big scales, 
but it's convergent evolution. And one species, the carp, or those species are native to another continent entirely. The catastomids or the, and the big wild buffalo are native to North America. But if you look closely, like you'll see a lot of differences. It just takes paying a little more attention, I guess, to the details. And then also, like Tyler had mentioned, just doing a little research as you catch the fish or see them instead of jumping to conclusions. But they're as related as deer are to pigs. I saw a quote, I think it was from Meat Eater, about it's kind of like calling a bison a cow, right? It's like a totally, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. So if we were to look at a carp in hand compared to a buffalo in hand, can you guys describe some of the differences that folks might see or maybe some of the habitat differences that they live in? Yeah, so one of the most striking differences up close is the common carp anyway have barbells on the snout, whereas the big mouth buffalo do not. The big mouth buffalo also tend to have a much bigger head with a dark eye, like a dark doll's eye. Many people have described it to me, or a puppy dog eye, whereas the common carp has sort of a lighter colored eye and a more pointy head. And then the common carp has more of a yellowish sheen and stronger borders in between the scales. There's also differences in the number of fin rays, and the common carp has spines in their dorsal fin and anal fin, whereas the Big mouth buffalo has no spine, so they're a soft grade fish. And with regard to some of the other carp, like the big head and silver carp, the big mouth buffalo has much larger scales. They just have a more, let's say, fusiform body shape. And the big mouth buffalo has a really interesting face, too. I was kind of looking at all the pictures online, and they have an interesting mouth and kind of a big nostril. And yeah, the eye is definitely unique, too, it looks like. So I like to sight fish for them is how I actually catch them is I, I have some places where I'll, I know that they'll concentrate and they'll actually feed. And I like want to sneak up on them and like get close enough that I can actually like see them and put a bait right into in front of their nose. And so it's really important for me when I'm doing this to like make sure that I'm not confusing a buffalo and a carp. And what I've found is the buffalo in the water in particular, they look like an even dark color. Whereas carp in the water, you can still make out that scale pattern, those dark scale bases, and they have a sort of a crosshatch pattern. And they're always like yellowish, whereas buffalo are somewhat variable in color, but they're in the water, they look an even dark black or green color, except for right around their their head. And actually, uh, Katrina, behind behind you, your, your background, that buffalo, you could see the white patches under its throat and around its eye. And those stand out in the water even against that black fish. And so you can look for those white patches with a dark body. And then of course, if you see the tail, it's always a flack or gray, whereas carp usually have that orangey tail. And so even just like seeing them swim up a creek, you can pick out just from seeing part of the fish, you can tell which one's a buffalo and which one's a carp. And that's super helpful because I mean, you're doing catch and release, but some people bow fish for these. So it's really good to have some techniques to ID something from above the water looking in, because that's obviously a, a kill a kill shot if you're bow fishing for them. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually just fishing to uh, some buffalo that were spawning in a, in a small creek by my house and I didn't catch anything. And I had a great time. I sat on the side of the creek for about three hours and I was just watching buffalo swim up the stream. And for me, it was a, a little bit like sitting there and getting to see a salmon migration or something. You know, there's so many nature documentaries about salmon overcoming all these obstacles and migrating great distances. And here I'm sitting there watching 20 pound buffalo 
doing very similar thing. These are, you know, majestic fish splashing and, and leaping and looking for a way upstream. And uh, I've got the place all to myself. And I didn't catch anything. What are you using to target these? Because we talked on the show about how suckers as a family are notoriously hard to catch. And even within the suckers, the buffalo are known as being particularly challenging. So how would you go about trying to catch one of these fish? You know, some fish require finesse to catch and some fish require bait. Big mouth buffalo really require extreme finesse and a little bit of bait is the best way to do it. So yeah, I spent about five years trying to catch a big mouth buffalo before I finally like succeeded. And I know people who, who tried longer than I did. And what I found is, is really the key is first is, is to try to find some fish that are actively feeding. If they're not actively feeding, you will not tempt them to feed. And, and what does that look like actively feeding? You'll see them like actually opening their mouths and swimming. A lot of times they'll sort of be resting or maybe they're swimming in the current, but like they're not doing anything or moving around. And those fish seem to just not have any interest in food. I don't know if their stomachs are full or if conditions aren't right and they're not going to expend the energy, but they're so big that they do seem to, especially like the big ones, seem to sort of trust their own size as like a defense. It's like they're grazing. You know, I've equated it to um, trying to catch a sheep by throwing carrots at it. You know, (laughs) it's like, you're just going to confuse, you know, it just wants to eat grass. It does not know why there are carrots being whipped at its head. So like you try to present a bait to it and it's just like, where did that come from? (laughs) What are they eating? You know, they're apparently eating plankton or very small invertebrates generally that are drifting on the river. They'll come up to the surface where foam collects and they will graze right at the surface, but they just will go like in a straight line. They just keep, keep going. And if your bait is off that line, most of the time they won't react to it or move. And then if you are clumsy in presenting your bait and you do get it in the right spot, more often than not, they'll somehow miss it. (laughs) They'll just duck under it or go around it. When you're saying bait, are you referring to some sort of natural bait? Are you casting flies or what is it that you're using? I've caught them on flies. I think it's even slightly more frustrating, but I've definitely caught them on on flies, a foam hopper or something like that. But usually what I do is I use a bit of nightcrawler that I inflate so that it floats at the surface film. You just like use a pipette or something? (laughs) They make uh, little worm inflators that Ah. you get at the bait shop. Walleye fishermen use them to keep their worms floating slightly above the bottom. That's amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I've never even heard of this before. This This must be a Minnesota thing. Yeah. Walleye fishermen. And then, yeah, I present that using an 18-foot-long Japanese trout fishing rod, which allows me to get a very delicate presentation and a perfect drift that matches the speed of the water. Because if the fly or bait doesn't match that speed of the water, it will look like it's trying to swim away or something, and the buffalo will not eat it. They seem to be keyed in on just what is drifting. And so if something moves... That like seems to tell them that it's not food. So 18, it's not like a Tankara rod you're not talking about, are you? No, it's longer than that. My gosh. Okay. And how stiff is it? Is it rigged up at least with like a reel and everything? Oh, no, no. No. How do you get this fish in then? Sorry, with all the questions, I'm just, I'm fascinated. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, the, 
Actually, the, the hardest part about fishing with a Kairu rod is everyone who comes by interrupting you and asking what it is. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just a, it's basically a really fancy cane pole. And the key is to have somebody else help you net it. So my daughter is an expert at netting buffalo now. Do you have any tips on handling them once you get them where you can actually get a hold of them to unhook them? Just if you're going to catch and release, what are your tips? Don't try to put your fingers in their gills. You know, I've grabbed plenty of pike and lake trout underneath by the gill. The bigmouth buffalo, their perkles are really tight and they don't have like a cartilagey membrane underneath to like safely grab that way. So definitely bring yourself a soft mesh net. I see pictures of fish that have been caught with like the nylon, the cheap nylon net, and it like really tears their fins up. So get yourself a nice fine mesh, like fish safe net and land them relatively quickly with that. Give them a minute in the water to catch their breath after the fight. And then you can bring them out, support them you know, underneath and get a quick picture uh, before you revive them. But you really can't thumb them, like lip them like a bass and you can't grab their, their gill cover like you would with a, a pike or a, a lake trout. And you can't grab their body <laughs> any other way. So bring a net. <laughs> these are girthy. I mean, these fish are, they can get really big, like I mentioned. I mean, I was looking at pictures online and my daughter thought it was a seal at first because they are, I mean, they're just like fat. Yeah. And even a five pounder is like slippery and has no handles on it. <laughs> so. So we talked about how to tell the big mouth buffalo from the common carp and the other invasive carps that we have, but we haven't talked about how it compares to other species of buffalo. And I know there's, I think, three species in the U.S., maybe a few more outside the U.S. So if one of you could talk about how you tell this species from the other species in the genus, I'd be interested to hear. So they have a forward-facing mouth, whereas the other buffalo fish species have a subterminal or bottom-facing mouth, just like the common carp. So the big mouth buffalo is unique in its mouth orientation, and that reflects its unique feeding ecology where it filter feeds in the open water generally. And that's one of the easiest ways to distinguish them from the other buffalo fish species is in the mouth. And what are the other species of buffalo then? So there's the smallmouth buffalo and the black buffalo, and there's also the fleshy lip buffalo and another species down in um, Mexico and Guatemala. Um, so there's a total of five, I think, described species, but there is a lot of overlap between them genetically. Um, and there's hybridization that's been supposedly documented between big mouth and small mouth and, and black and potentially the species in Mexico. It really shows how they're, they're still all fairly closely related, at least genetically. How are all these species doing? I think that in general, there's a need for more knowledge because we previously misunderstood bigmouth buffalo's biology by basically an order of magnitude, and that leads to all sorts of different ramifications. So it needs reassessment, especially in the areas in Minnesota and some other areas that are undergoing study currently. Um, there's probably a need for change in terms of management and that because they're, like Tyler mentioned earlier, unlimited bag limit is not compatible with a long-lived, slow-growing species. 
Yeah. And they're not a they're not considered a sport fish. So it kind of I think it ties in a little bit with some of the research and how much priority is put on them. Can one of you speak to sport fish versus rough fish or trash fish? Yeah, actually, I've been doing a, a lot of research on this. And like because of this pretty arbitrary distinction between the sport fish and rough fish, there's a complete lack of funding for these native fish. The uh, Dingle Johnston Act or the Sport Fish Restoration Act has it right in the name. And so there is funding to the states for research and management of sport fish. And there is, are also grant programs for threatened fish. Fish that fall in gap don't get funding easily. And so apparently we have to wait until this fish is threatened to then do the re- like to, to make the funding available which is, of course, the wrong way to do it. It's much easier to manage and conserve something before it's rare. But, you know, somehow we've created this gap where these native fish don't fall into either category yet. Uh, Yeah, and I'd like to add there that most of the work that I've done and that my colleagues have done has been on a shoestring budget over the past few years. It hasn't been like fully funded projects. It's been very difficult to secure any funding to do this type of work. But we've uncovered some fascinating discoveries, which I'm hoping will eventually lead to more funding and more opportunities. But like Tyler has mentioned, and I'll echo, it's hard to get any people's attention with regard to the funding asset because it just falls back to, oh, they're not, those are rough fish. But I think times are changing, especially with the rise of bow fishing. And that is, by definition, a sport by those who participate in it. So therefore, the fish that they target are indeed sport fish. It's just we have to recognize the way fisheries are evolving. I, I do think that you can make a strong case that bigmouth buffalo meet the definition of a sport fish. Right now, the state of Minnesota is currently, they have the no junk fish bill is currently like being debated in conference committee, maybe as we speak. That's not going to completely change things. But if that is incorporated, it would be a first step, which would require the state of Minnesota to review the rough fish regulations and the the rules around that, which is complicated because these fish are both in the rec, you know recreational fishing regulations. They are also have commercial regulations. Some of these catastomids in Minnesota and other species are already listed as threatened. The black buffalo in Minnesota is listed as threatened, and other fish are listed as threatened in the surrounding states. I think. Bigmouth buffalo was uh, also threatened in parts of Canada. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very complex issue where fish can be doing poorly in one area and on the edge of their range or something. But on the other hand, a lot of these fish were populations were low because they've suffered from both water pollution and unlimited commercial harvest. Because even when they made fishing regulations in the 1900s, these fish had few or no protections. And so you know, they've really been getting it from all sides for a long time. I think there was probably a time when as water pollution was improved since the Clean Water Act, where these fish were probably experiencing a bit of a rebound, which then maybe brought them to the attention of bow fishing and anglers and stuff, where now it's like, well, wait, where did these come from? And now it's like, you know, maybe victims of their own success sometimes. Can you speak to some of the place names? It seems like a lot of place names are tied to fish. And a lot of times those names highlight the importance of fish to indigenous peoples. And I'm wondering if you've come across any place names that are tied to big mouth buffalo in particular. Yeah. So 
in Minnesota, there is a Candy Ohio County, which is also oddly uh, became the brand of bottled water, which everyone knows. <laughs> but Candy Ohio is Dakota or Lakota for the place where the buffalo fish come. And that area is actually the headwaters of the Crow River. And so the lakes in that region used to get big migrations of bigmouth buffalo. Bigmouth buffalo are actually missing from the upper Mississippi for close to 100 years. And they seem to have maybe recently recolonized that area. But like there's a Buffalo Lake in Minnesota, which is actually named for the fish in the lake, which is then Buffalo, Minnesota is named for the fish. I always love telling people that and they're always surprised. And it's like the the history of these fish and the importance of these fish, I think, has been lost in a lot of times. And I, I'm sure there's so many more of these stories and connections that haven't been saved, which is a, a shame. I think it's great to, you know, it really reinforces the idea of how, like, how native they are, too. It's like they've always been important. They've always been commercially harvested. They've always been important to people since before we were writing this stuff down, before we had a concept of rough fish. Now it's an opportunity for you to like bring this up to the to the forefront again and maybe celebrate these things. There's something I want to talk about. I don't I haven't formulated a question in my head, but I just want to broach the topic. And we touched on it a little bit. You did, Tyler. The issue that I want to talk about is the wanton waste. You know, we all, everyone here in this room knows about the issues that these fish in particular are facing with wanton waste. And that really kind of disgusts me. And you see, like, when you're talking about hunting and stuff, there are usually in many states laws that explicitly make wasting good meat illegal. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Give the people at home who might not know anything about this an idea of the scale and some of the piles you see out there, because I, that's something I really despise about some of these things. Like, again, if, if you're hunting for the fish with a bow and just harvesting them that way and you're taking home and eating them, as long as it's done with proper management at the end of the day, I don't have a problem with it, but just killing it to kill and waste is, I have a big problem with that. So basically the end result of bow fishing, which tends to be a whole bunch of fish that are then dumped somewhere, they tend to be whole bodied fish. And that's just, I think the result of the way bow fishing, modern bow fishing has come to be. So the, with very liberal or totally non-existent limits, it allows people to basically try to rack up as many fish as they can to, so that they can impress their peers or whatever, and also try to get the biggest fish of each species. So then what ends up happening is literally 55-gallon barrels full of fish can be filled or the whole boat can be filled up to the gunnels. And then there's all this biomass that has been removed from the system and then there has to be something done with it but it's just simply too much to be processed by the average person that would be doing that so it ends up just being discarded somewhere but yeah there is a lot of good meat that's being just cast aside i can speak to in minnesota the law states that you may not wantonly waste a protected wild animal and these fish are protected wild animals and so I think that a lot of what has been happening is technically illegal, has technically been illegal, and that there has been a lack of interest or people have not thought of it in that way. I suspect that that is going to change. You know, I'm a, I'm a hunter, I'm an angler, I eat fish. We apply 
a set of ethics of identifying your target, taking what you can use, using what you can take. We apply those to birds and mammals really easily and without any argument. You know, you're not going to find a lot of people who who stand up and say that it's okay to take just the antlers off a deer. And yet somehow that logic hasn't been extended to fish, even though they live 10 times longer than a deer does. When I have these conversations with people and make that connection that you are hunting fish and that we should use the same ethics for hunting fish that we use for hunting anything else, I have a lot of light bulb moments with people. And a lot of people say, I never thought of it that way. And I think if we all think of it that way and we all you know, apply those ethics universally, it's going to reflect well on us, who are the people who are sports people. And that's really in the best interest of our traditions going forward. We do not want to be our own worst enemies. And, you know, we should never want to eliminate or harvest unsustainably something that we enjoy. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I'd like to mention too, is that it's not like the bow fishers are to blame or that that group is to blame or to play the blame game or whatever, there's basically a need for improvement across the board with the whole way things are changing. And there's a lot of people that, because like Tyler mentioned, I get a lot of the fish from those piles of discarded fish and so on. Basically, there's a lot of people who I've met in the bow fishing community who are concerned about the sustainability of doing this. And they want, they literally have said, like, a limit would be a good thing or, or this would be, changes would be good. There are others that don't think that, but there's definitely a growing contingent that are concerned because they've, they've witnessed declines already in the past 10, five to 10 years as bow fish, night bow fishing has really increased in popularity in the state. They've noticed that it's a lot harder to fill their barrels in their same spots and they want their grandkids to be able to do or at least have the opportunity to do what they like to do. So basically the, it falls on management to actually do something before it's too late. Yeah. I mean, in the absence of management and management does take a while to change sometimes, but just catch what you need and be observant of what's going on around you. And if you see that decline, yeah, use your own ethics and hopefully help keep those fish around on your own. We can all do our part. Yeah. And part of it too has to fall into the, I think, hands of the bow fishing community and recreational anglers too. They have to speak up and mention it because there's also like maybe a lot of people don't want to mention what they've seen because they think it's going to hurt the short term of the sport because they're not going to be able to shoot everything they want in unlimited numbers, but it's just changing to the long-term perspective. There's also a lot of confusion in the community. I talk to people regularly who believe that these fish and others are invasive. And that comes back to the messaging and the priorities of state and other, you know, conservation groups. And if you look, you know, you flip open the Minnesota Fishing Regulations book, there's pictures of silver carp and big head carp. There isn't a picture of a big mouth buffalo in there. People have gotten so many messages about the threat of invasive species that when they catch something that's unfamiliar, they assume it's new and then it's an invasive species. There's just been such a lack of awareness in a lack of education, the priority has been on educating people about threats, but yet these fish are actually a reason why, because they also filter feed and compete against big headed and silver carp. These fish are one of the reasons we need to stop invasive species. You know, 
but then they get confused with the invasive species because the education is so one-sided. That's a good point. That's a really good point. That's a plug for Fish of the Week because everyone should listen to Fish of the Week and learn about all the fish. We got to raise the bar. We got to raise the bar. Share it, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I was just going to ask. Okay. So we've talked about a lot of like things that you'd like to see done and things that people should do. If you were at the, the, the head of things, Tyler and Alec, you had unlimited funds. You could galvanize the population. What would you like to, what are like the top three things you'd like to see done to help conserve Buffalo and promote Buffalo up in your native Minnesota? Um, I would first fully fund all of Alex's research. Nepotism. And then I would fully in, fully enforce the state's want and waste laws. And that would be it. I'd only need two. First of all, it's education. And then second would be proactive management, active management. Because currently there's basically no management. And then third would be just monitoring and trying to understand the trends over time. And then all the other things will follow. All right. Yeah. Education, enforcement, and active and proactive management. Those are all great ones. Well, thank you, too, for joining us. This was thank fascinating. You. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is great. So, folks out there listening, we don't want the big mouth buffalo to go the way of the bison. So, get out there and enjoy all the fish and learn your native fish, including the very cool buffalo species. Do you have that pre-written as your outro, Katrina? I was, I was writing it while we were chatting that last little bit there. <laughs> I like it. Nailed it. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.